the eldership and the ministers here would like to welcome you to uh, the services this morning. Some of you have already been here. Some of you are just arriving for the Bible class and will be here for the, the second services. And we're glad that you chose to come and be with us. If you're a visitor, I'm a visiting preacher. So I'll let uh, somebody else welcome you a little better on that. But uh, we're glad that you chose to come and to be with us and to worship with us and especially to study with us this morning. Um, the more that I study the Gospels and the more time I spend in the Scriptures, I come to the conclusion that the one word which could sum up Christianity is relationships. You start in the Garden of Eden and God makes a perfect world, puts a man in it and says, that ain't right. Well, that's a loose Hebrew translation. I think it's, it is not good for man to be alone. I think it's probably the, the more appropriate. But he says, Adam needs a relationship. And so God builds a relationship for Adam. God is maintaining a relationship with Adam and Eve. And when they transgress and they sin, it severs the relationship. And it puts into motion the plan laid before the foundation of the world. The plan that Paul calls reconciliation. And reconciliation simply means to repair a damaged relationship. To become friends again. When God gives the Decalogue to Moses, there are... Five laws between man and God and five laws between man and man. When Jesus teaches the Beatitudes, he's going to talk about things that help God and man, things that help man and man. When Jesus is asked to sum up everything in the commandments, he says the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Relationships, 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 relationships is the cornerstone of Christianity. And so as we spend our family day together, what I thought about doing in, in the Bible class was simply talk about some ways to make sure our relationships are, are steadfast. If you have a relationship in the church, whether it's member to member or a familial relationship, husband and wife or parent and children, all relationships, all status in the kingdom are based on three enduring principles. Submission, service, and forgiveness. If we can get a handle on submission, service, and forgiveness, we can get a handle on serving God. In, in my mind, submission is, is how I see myself. Service is how I see you. And forgiveness is that understanding that God on a regular basis has to start over with me, so why can't I start over with you? And so as we talk about relationships and submission, service, and forgiveness, I guess the main thing I'd like to talk about is the husband and wife relationship and how to keep that relationship faithful. People essentially have needs and the need system for men and the need system for women are different. Now, we all say, yeah, I know that. But we don't act like we know that. If you look in the scriptures in, in Ephesians 5, it's husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. If you want to turn over to uh, the letter that, that Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter 3. 
He's going to give some advice to ladies and going to give some advice to men. And this is interesting to me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Do not let your adornment be merely the outward, arranging of your hair, wearing of gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in the same manner, the former times, the holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves. Now, what is the manifestation of this adornment? Being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. In the classic husband and wife chapter in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about wives be submissive. Be submissive to your husband as the church is submissive to Christ. And then when Peter begins to talk to these ladies and says, you know, your beauty doesn't come from what you look like. It, it comes from how you act. Your beauty and your attractiveness to your husband is basically the demeanor in which you carry yourselves and whether or not you give him the respect that he needs. Now, it doesn't say the respect he deserves. It doesn't say the respect he's earned. It says the respect that as a male that he needs. And he says these women behaved with a gentle and a quiet spirit. They behaved in a way that their beauty was not outward but inward. And the ultimate example of that was that Sarah obeyed Abraham, was submissive to him, and called him Lord. Now before you get crazy and start throwing songbooks at me, you go back to Genesis chapter 21. Abraham is promised a son. The son doesn't come on his time schedule, so he goes into Hagar and they produce Ishmael. Now if you keep up with the way things are going over in the Middle East. Ishmael is, is a long-term problem for lots of people. If God will allow me one little bitty teeny tiny backhand when I get to heaven, I'm smacking Abraham. You should have left Ishmael out of this and we wouldn't be having some of the... Anyway, he has Ishmael and later on the son of promise comes. Sarah conceives and, and has Isaac. In Genesis 21, on the day that Isaac is weaned, Abraham throws this big feast. And while the son Isaac is enjoying this, Ishmael is mocking or teasing Isaac. Sarah sees it, and oh, Abraham gets a double hipper and a foot tapper. She says, this son of this bondwoman is not going to be an heir with my son. Get him out of here. And Abraham is distressed as he can be because this is his son too. The angel of the Lord appears to Abraham and says, Don't you let the thing that Sarah says to you be displeasing to you, but you do what Sarah said. Now folks, do you understand that even though Sarah was the wife of a patriarch and even though she was submissive and even though she called him Lord, God himself said, Abraham, if Sarah ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And you listen to what that woman says. Ladies, that gives you some status. You can be submissive. You can give your husband the respect and the kudos he needs as being the leader of your home, but your needs and your wants and your opinions and your likes matter. And they matter to God. Because God told Abraham, you listen to Sarah. And guys, we'd be real smart if we'd listen to our Sarahs. And Sarahs, you'd be smart if you'd treat us 
like you respected us. Because typically, that's the differential between men and women is women need love and men need respect. Notice what he says to the men, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding. Now, that's a tall order. Guys, live with your wives and understand that they are different than you. The goofy story about the guy walking on the beach, finds the magic genie, rubs the lamp, the genie pops out. He goes, hey, you're a genie, I get three wishes. He goes, no, I'm on the beach, I only get one, you only get one wish, I'm on vacation. The guy goes, okay, I would love to go to Hawaii, I'm afraid of flying, I'm afraid of sailing, so build me a bridge to Hawaii. And the guy says, do you realize what kind of paperwork I'd have to fill out to do this? Do you realize that I've got to clear the shipping zones and got to have environmental impact and I'll have to meet with the genie council? He said, that's too hard. Give me another wish. The guy said, well, I wish I understood my wife. He goes, you want four lanes or two lanes on your bridge? Okay, it's, it's a difficult thing sometimes to be involved in all that. Peter tells these guys, you dwell with them in the same way that their attractiveness is not on the outside. Your attractiveness is not on the outside either. It's inside. You dwell with them with understanding. Now, here's two points of understanding. Number one, giving honor to them as the weaker vessel and being heirs together in the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. First of all, if I'm an heir and you're an heir, are we equal? Okay, in Alabama, this means yes. And this means no, and this means you're not voting. If you're an heir and I'm an heir, are we equal? Yes. There's no differential between the importance of women with God. God said, you are heirs in the kingdom the same as I'm heirs in the kingdom. You're not a second-class citizen just because you've been given a role of submissiveness. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. Wow, even Jesus was submissive in some areas. So there's, it's not this thing where God says you're a second-class person because I've asked you to be submissive. I've told you to be submissive because that's what your husband needs you to be. And you're meeting his needs. Now, husbands, we're meeting their needs when, first of all, we dwell with them in understanding, treating them, number one, as, a, as an heir, as an equal, and number two, giving honor to them as a weaker vessel. I'm not real sure about this weaker vessel thing. It could simply mean genetic structure. These, these teenage guys and girls that were sitting over here, the simple fact that you've got a male versus a female, he is three times stronger than she is just because he's male. His muscles are wrapped differently. When he turns into an adult male, he's built this way. She's going to be built this way. His structure of his muscles are thicker and, and wrapped differently. And it may simply deal with the fact of, of, of just the musculature, that she is indeed a weaker vessel. Now you add the propensity that teenage boys like to lay down on objects and see how many times they can put circular weights on a bar and see how many times they can do this with it. He could be five to seven times stronger than she is. I, my wife is, is a delicate person. 
Now, she's got a business end, and you don't want to cross her, but she's a delicate person. When, when I, you ever have your wife make fun of you because you're a baby when you get hurt? Let's do a little come to, yeah. We, we, my theory for that is my wife experiences pain every day. She bump her elbow on the counter, and it'll bruise. She can tap her knee against something, and, and, and it'll bleed. We can be goofing around, and, and, and I poke her a little hard. She's, oh, that hurts. I don't feel pain every day. In fact, when I go through my normal routine, I'll come home sometimes and say, what would you do to your arm? I don't know. What happened to your head? I have no clue. When something happens to me and it registers, hey, that hurt. It hurts. I'm pitiful and I want ice cream. I mean, look, it's, oh, I'm dying because I don't live with pain every day. She does every single day of her life. Something happens that, that injures her. And, and now look, she grew up playing softball, grew up in Velvet Ridge, Arkansas. Uh, the first day I met her, she flattened me on a basketball court. I mean, she's tough for a girl, but she's delicate in some ways that I'm not. And maybe that's what it means. It's just that, that simply we're built differently. I like to get in the dirt and rough and tumble and goof around. And she's not into all that because she's built different. That may be what it means. But the way he talks about giving honor to her as the weaker vessel makes me think of it in a, in a little different term. And, and ladies, I apologize up front for this example. Okay? Just, there it is. All right? Throw rocks at me at the picnic today, but I, you know. After we got married, Jackie didn't work outside the home until our daughter, Lonnie Beth, who everybody calls LB, started to school. When LB started to school, Jackie started using her degree and started teaching school. When she came home with her first check. Now, in Alabama, they pay the, the teachers once a month. When she came home with her first check, she said, with my, with my first check, I wanted to buy you something. She bought me a rifle, a Ruger Mark II M77, synthetic stock, stainless steel, 30 6 it is a beast. It doesn't have a, a wooden stock. It's got a synthetic skeletized stock. You can drag it through the mud. You can slide it against a tree. You can rake a barbed wire fence with it. You can butt stroke a coyote in the head if it gets too close to you, and you're not going to hurt that rifle. It is a monster workhorse. It's a bolt action, so there's no moving parts. It won't jam. It won't grime up. It won't Look, you can drag it through the mud, go home, wipe it off, and hunt with it. I don't clean it but once a year. I side it in, make sure it's zeroed, and I hunt with it all year. And then at the end of the season, I clean a little bit, put it up, and it's stainless. You can't hurt that rifle, and it is a cannon. With the proper load, it'll kill any animal on the North American continent. The SWAT guys help her pick it out. On top of that rifle is a Weaver telescopic sight. It's got a 50-millimeter lens It'll gather light from a long, long way away. If you dial that scope in the way I've got it set, if I point at something 100 yards away where the X is, the bullet will hit 1.5 inches above that. At 200 yards away, if you put the X on it, the bullet hits where the X is. So if I can see you from the distance of two football fields, 
I can drop bullets in one on top of the other. In fact, when I sight it in, I'm not happy unless those holes are touching each other. That scope, if you bump it against a tree or get it in the mud or whack a coyote with it, is ruined. And without the scope, the rifle is dysfunctional. When you pair them together, my rifle and the scope, in the system, the scope is the weaker vessel. And when I carry that rifle, I have to carry it in consideration of the scope, not the rifle. Because if I let the scope get damaged, the rifle won't work. In fact, the rifle won't hit a mark without that scope. The Greek word hamartea means to miss the mark. Guys, you've got to treat your wives because they are the delicate part of this system and oftentimes keep you aimed. And if you don't take care of them and you don't pamper them and you don't care for them in such a way that they keep you sighted in, you're doomed to miss everything you try to do in life. Now, ladies, I apologize. I made you a rifle scope. But if you know how important a scope is on a rifle, in, in my book, that's a pretty big honor. So the men are built one way, one way the ladies are built another, and, and that brings up the idea that we have different sets of needs. Adam and Eve... Not Adam and Steve, okay? We're not alike. We're not similar. And, and so there's got to be some things. So how do you start dealing with these differentials in needs? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Paul kind of sets a pattern for what we ought to be doing as Christians in getting along with each other. You, you take that as a Christian to Christian and you move that and just kind of extrapolate me and my wife. Here's the cautions. Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing you do in your relationship with your partner should be because you have a selfish agenda. If you can eliminate selfishness in your relationships, you can eliminate almost all your problems. A young man asked me one time in a Bible class, said, Lonzo said, I got a question. You got... A guy over here who steals a candy bar from Walmart, and you got a guy over here who's axe murdering children. Both of those things are, are sin in God's eyes. How does God see those two things as the same? Because all sin is based in selfishness. James says we're tempted because of what we want, and what we want comes, comes from our selfishness. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. James 3.16, where you have selfish ambition, every evil thing exists. You want to open the door for any kind of sin, any kind of crime, or any kind of perversion, all you've got to do is add the selfishness factor. And where you have selfishness, you can have anything wrong. So don't do anything in your relationship with your spouse out of selfishness. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit. Sometimes we put a price tag on ourselves that's a little inflated. My grandmother used to say, I'd like to buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth. Well, we can't in our relationships walk in acting like we're the person who's got the most stock in this relationship. I can't do anything in getting along with my wife based on, first of all, a selfish agenda, or second of all, elevating myself and saying, I'm the prince of the universe. 
Nothing can be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in lowliness of mind, that's a change of attitude and a change of heart, I've got to treat others better than myself. I've got to esteem my wife as the most important person in this relationship. Now, if I do that for her and she does that for me, what ends up happening is we end up trying to treat, out-treat each other better. And instead of me standing over here yelling, meet my needs, and her yelling, meet my needs, no, meet my needs, no, meet my needs, no, meet my needs. If I start, we're just competing then. But if I try to meet her needs and esteem her as more important than me, and she tries to meet my needs and esteem me more important than her, what we end up doing instead of competing is, is having a cooperation. And that mutual bond builds strength and, and, and we get stronger. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Have a shift in your mind and, and treat others better than you would yourself. Verse 4, look not only for your own interest, but for the interest of others. I'm going to put her needs above my rights. And then Paul says, and, and in case you missed that, let me give you an example. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to know how to treat people? Well, use the same attitude Jesus used. Now, here's the description of Christ. And when Paul tells the story of Jesus, he does not start in the manger. He starts in the throne room. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was the same as God, and it was not robbery. It was not inappropriate. It wasn't a foul if you'll allow me to, to just give you another goofy illustration, you walk into the back door there, and this is the throne room of heaven, and you've got a throne here and a throne here. Under protocol, which throne should you bow before? Well, where's God sitting? Where's Jesus sitting? You can bow before either throne because Jesus and God were equal. And you could walk in and fall on your face because Jesus was of the very nature God. Now, I don't understand all there is to know about the Trinity. I don't understand the, the, the dynamics of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The definite article is present. The definite article is absent. In the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word was God. Proper name. And the word was deity, a description of substance. The best I can do with that, folks, is water. Water's chemical compound is H2O. If you have liquid water and you heat it up and it becomes a vapor, that vapor still is H2O. If you freeze it, it becomes a solid, but that solid is still H2O. You've got the same substance, H2O, a solid, a liquid, and a vapor. The same stuff, three different manifestations. You've got God material. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When you walked in here, Jesus was God. Now, you want to know how to treat other people? Let this attitude be in you that was in, in Jesus. Jesus was God. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation... And took on the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of a man. Jesus left being God and came to be a man. 
if you'd like to just get silly sometimes, ask yourself what kind of man Jesus could have been. Could you imagine getting an invitation to come see Jesus at the Colosseum? Jesus is going to be doing miracles. Not David Copperfield tricks. Miracles. Going to turn water to wine. Going to walk on the water. Going to raise the dead, heal the blind, cast out demons, bring a piece of bread. I'll feed everybody there. You think Jesus could sell out a Colosseum? Or in Alabama, this means yes. This means no. Jesus, if you'll pardon the phrase, could have had rock star status international fame. He could have come here and sold out anything you wanted to sell out and had people lining up, had an entourage and bodyguards and a line of merchandise because, look, folks, you couldn't get a better ticket than that anywhere in town. Suppose Jesus had wanted to come to earth and and be a military leader. Sometimes we think power is in popularity and sometimes we think power is just in power. Suppose Jesus had come to earth and decided, I think I'll just show these guys what the power of God's like. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells Peter, Don't you know my father will give me 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers in it. If he gets 12 legions, he's got 72,000 angels. We sing the song, He Could Have Called 10,000 Angels. Hey, folks, we only miss it by 62,000 angels. Read 2 Kings 19, one angel kills 185,000 men. You take 185,000 and you assume that's the average batting average of an unarmed angel and you multiply that by 72,000. Look, you've got enough military force to wipe out the world's population several times over when he could have made that call. Hey guys, you're not going to crucify me. Legion 1, take the Jews. Legion 2, take the the Romans. Legion 3, take the guy with the hammer. You got nine legions left over and not enough cosmic dust to put in a communion cup. Yet he wasn't a rock star and he wasn't a general. When he left the throne of heaven and became a man, he became a servant. A bond servant. Not the diakonoi, but the doulos. The bond servant. You buy your bond servant at the local slave market and he's the youngest, most inexperienced, least educated. When you bring him home, he'll wash your feet. I read somewhere that some bond servants sold for 30 pieces of silver. I know that Jesus sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now, you want to know what you're expected to give up for your spouse? Get off your throne, quit saying, Hey, I'm God. And you come and you be a servant. And not just any servant, but a, a lowly, meek, humble, serving servant. And then he became obedient to death and and even the death on the cross. Folks, you want to talk about meeting needs and giving, not giving up, not giving in, giving. Talk about giving and that's how you become an affair-proof marriage. Because I give you what you need, not what you deserve. I put your needs above my rights and you do the same for me. And then neither one of us tends to stray. Now with those thoughts in mind, with that background, would like to just kind of review some differences just just from the the psychology end of, of, of men and women. 
If you're familiar with Willard Harley's book, His Needs, Her Needs, he writes this book and says he surveyed couples. And after surveying 10,000 people, 5,000 couples, he came to the conclusion that men and women had different needs. Could have had a V8. Wow. Men and women have different needs. Man's five top needs. Number one for men, sexual fulfillment. Men view, define, and see themselves as sexual creatures. And their view of themselves and their view of themselves and their satisfaction in life starts absolutely with the expectation that when I get married, there is going to be sexual activity. Men begin thinking about sexual activity from the time they start lying about it in the seventh grade in the locker room. And a kid who's 13 all the way up till he's 23, the average male will have a thought about sex every seven seconds. That's the average people. That's why you see these little seventh grade boys walking around your halls going, <laughs> but every seven seconds they just randomly grin. They have no idea what's going on. They're just, wow, you know. If that's not happening on a regular basis to the satisfaction of the male in that home, he is going to start looking somewhere else for it. There are three hundred million website opportunities for him to find. And the biggest addiction I deal with at my practice is men in pornography because they're going outside their marital relationships. Now sometimes men get addicted to that and, and things are still good between them and the wives, but eventually it will ruin the sexual relation between the husband and the wife. His number one need sexual fulfillment. Number two for him is recreational companionship. Men build friendships by doing. Women build friendships by talking. You introduce yourself as a guy, I'm Lonnie, this is my best friend Bob. We hunt, we fish, we golf, we rape, whatever. Men define their relationships by the things that they do. When you dated your husband, that's how he fell in love with you because you went with him. You would go watch him play ball or you'd go do something with him. You'd go put up with sitting in his bass boat for a month, a day. And, 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 and while you would read while he fished. If he was repairing the transmission, you'd bring over a, a box of sandwiches. And when we get married, we expect you're going to come out to the garage and watch us do what we do again. But you say, okay, I've, been, I've played enough games now. I'm going to start nesting and building a house. Men want recreational companionship. We want to spend time with you. Because that's how we build friendships. And we go, hey, you know what? This girl goes to these games with me and goes to these places and she looks better than the guys I run around with and smells better than they do. I think I'll keep her around. And we assume that after we get married, that's going to keep going. And when you quit being our playmate, things are unhappy for the men. His third need is an attractive spouse. Now, that doesn't mean you have to look 18 all your life. It simply means, what do you do with what you've got? You don't have to look like the cover of Cosmo. But when you were dating, he never saw you without you being made up. He never saw you without you looking your best. He never saw you without you being fine. And three weeks after you got married, that terry cloth bathrobe showed up with those fuzzy bunny slippers. First time that thing walked out of my closet, I said, Honey, don't move. I think I can get it off your back before it bites you. My mother gave that to me. Oh, boy. Wow. Hello. When we date you, we assume nothing's going to change. You're going to look like this. Your hair's going to look like this. We're going to do these things together. And you get married with an agenda to change stuff. 
You're going to teach us to mop and clean and iron and match our colors and take regular baths. and We want an attractive spouse because that's what got us in the boat. That's what keeps us in the boat. Now, this next one, I didn't do this survey. It's not my material. Don't get mad at me. But there is a basic assumption on the part of married men that you will do some things for me that my mother did. And we call that domestic support. Now, before you call me a Neanderthal, you give lip service to I have a career and she has a career. You give lip service to we're a dual income family. But in his heart of hearts, in his mind of mind, in his subconscious regions, he thinks there are just some things that belong to you because you're female. Now, before you boo and hiss and throw stuff, if you hear a bump in the night, who has to check it? Why? Because he's the guy. Well, right, it didn't wake me up is what I tell Jackie. I said, there's a Benelli shotgun right there. Go see. She says, you have to check it. Why do I have to check it? Because you're the man. Well, there's some assumptions that there are some things men do and there's some assumptions some things women do and one of those things is in our heart of hearts and our mind of minds, we think that the management of the household is actually yours. Now, right, wrong, or indifference, if that's an expectation... Here's my expectations and here's reality. When life doesn't turn out like I expect it to, I suffer loss and humans grieve all losses. One of the symptoms for grief is depression and one of the symptoms for depression is irritability. It's just one of those things that that he needs. And and just kind of a timeout. Guys, if you hear a bump in the night and you go check it, don't check it with sports equipment. Don't wander around your house with a baseball bat. What are you thinking you're going to find? Some guy in the living room with a glove? (laughs) No, if you're going to go check bumps in the night, take something other than a golf club or a ball bat. That's for free. You didn't pay for that one, all right? Number five, his fifth need is admiration. He doesn't want you to tell your friends what a baby he is. He doesn't want you to tell your friends how ridiculous he is when he can't find the remote. Now, he'll walk two miles hunting it when all he could do is go and change the channel and sit back down. But he's going to lap that house. And eventually it becomes somebody stole the remote. (laughs) Now, they left the plasma TV on the wall. They left the DVR. But that $3 remote, bam, they're going with it. You don't have to tell your friends that about him. And he's got to feel respected and admired. Now, fellas, I'm sorry. I'm one of y'all. But let's just be honest. Play with me, play with me, look good for me, clean up after me, and tell me how great I am. <laughs> Ladies, you can't pull that off, you should not have a pet, all right? Because <laughs> we are simplistic and low maintenance. The problem that occurs is when you get over here to this list of needs. Fellas, her number one need is affection. That involves your understanding of her and treating her as a weaker vessel. Affection and and sexual activity are so different they don't live in the same neighborhood. If you've been married less than seven years, about 90% of what you think is affection, she's going to call groping, okay? That's, That's not what she's after, boys, all right? She's looking at, did you think about me when you didn't have to? Do you know the color of my eyes? Do you know my favorite color? Do you know my favorite food? Do you know my favorite song? On our anniversary, would you spend $15 on a card or 15 minutes to draw one? 
Guys, guess what they'll raise their hands and tell you they'd rather have? The drawn card, because it represents time and effort. It represents you'd go out of your way to do things for her. And fellas, if you're sending electronic cards, <laughs> you're as stupid as a run-over dog, because here's what she thinks. This is how much effort he put into my birthday. And if you put that kind of effort into your, her birthday, guess what kind of effort she's going to put into number one that evening? And that, that is the delete key, by the way. It ain't going to happen. She's got to feel like you understand not only her wants and her needs, but sometimes just her likes. Now, that's goofy the way they do math. He knows when the Vols play. He knows every driver and every number in NASCAR. He can program a computer. He can write in C plus C, and he can't remember the trash comes every Monday and has come every Monday for the last 19 years. She says, if you can remember all this but can't remember I need the trash taken out, she says, he doesn't love me because he doesn't give me affection. And affection sometimes means that you'll do some of that housework, that you'll pick up your dirty clothes, that you will trim those hedges, you'll fix that leaky faucet that you'll address. She wants to know that you think about her more than you think about you. Her number two need, fellas, is conversation. Women build intimacy by talking. They go on this teenage retreat. When you drive up to Fall Creek Falls, you go out of the valley and up into Spencer. When I was 40, I ran that hill on my 40th birthday into Spencer, Tennessee, just because I said I would when I was 40. But you get those kids up there, especially the teenagers, Friday night you get there and you check in and you have a Devo. Saturday morning you have breakfast, you have a Devo, you have some Bible classes, you eat lunch. After lunch from 1 to 5, the guys go outside and invent games to harm one another. They play tackle the man with the rock or whatever. They just play anything. They come in, they're muddy and they're bloody, their shirts are torn, and the guys are going, what a great retreat. The girls tolerate that. You eat supper, you have a Devo, you go to bed. It's 9.30, the guys are asleep because they've been outside killing each other. The girls go in, they put 40 girls on one top bunk, they sit in a circle around a huge pile of food, and they break every fire code known to man, and they talk till 3.30 in the morning. And they come home and go, it's the best retreat, we bonded because they talked. And fellas, when you were dating and she was going with you on your adventures, you were in your boat or in your Jeep or in your truck or in your garage, and you were in your comfort zone, and you talked with her. And you told her what you thought and what you felt and what you liked and what you hoped and what you dreamed. And when you get married and you want to find out what else is on, uh-huh, yeah, that's fine with me. That's not what she needs by conversation. My wife's a school teacher. During the year, she's pretty well occupied until school gets out. About the middle of June, my phone rang. Bonnie Jones, may I help you? Hi, hon. What you doing? I'm working. And that covers what I do. <laughs> I see clients. I administer psychological tests. I may teach at the police academy. I may take a group of people repelling. I may run a group through my ropes course. I may go do a, a, a corporate training. But working covers the stuff I do and the stuff they write me checks for. And that's my day. I do it every day. I'm working. And I don't think there needs to be more information than that. But that dull pause is on the line. And I have to ask what are you doing? <laughs> oh, well, I slept till about 8.30. Then I got up and I made some waffles. You know those kind of waffles we made when we were in Gallenberg and your mom and dad bought me that robe? No, no, not the pink robe. but the. And she'll talk for 30 minutes and not cover two minutes of her day. I won't live long enough to finish this conversation. 
But if I shut her off or shut her down and don't give her conversation, we will not be friends. Because she says, if you don't listen to me and you don't talk to me, I'm not important to you. Her number three need is openness and honesty. And fellas, if you're not telling your wife the truth about where you go and what you spend and who you're with and what you're doing, that is a deal breaker. If I see 50 couples this year and the man is guilty of, of, of committing adultery, one of those little girls will sit in my office and say, I cannot believe he did those things physically with her. 49 of them will say, I cannot believe he lied to me. And I'm having trouble living with a man I cannot trust. And fellas, her need for your openness and your honesty is tremendous. Her need to believe that you say what you mean and mean what you say is, is paramount to anything else in her life. Because she married you to admire you and once you deviate from her being able to trust you, she cannot admire you. And if she does not admire you, she will not want to be with you recreationally and definitely will not want to be with you sexually. And you want a deal breaker that ruins this marriage, you tell her a lie about anything. And stick a fork in it because it's done. Number four for her is financial security. Now there's an assumption from her that you're going to do some things for her her daddy did. I've got one that's 18. She's at Troy University. The password on my electronic banking account is cash2lb. All right? <laughs> because I, that's what I do. I'm a dad. I, I was working with a group of 19-year-old of, of girls on a, on a team building thing. I said, look, up front, ladies, I'm 44. i got a climbing harness older than most of y'all. But I'm going to call you honey, darling, sweetie, and baby because I've got one your age. And I may randomly hand you cash because they're teenage girls. You, know, you just do that. She assumes that when she marries you, you're going to take care of her. You're going to put a roof over her head, clothes on her back, and food in the mouths of those children. She left her childhood friends, she left her girlhood home, and she walked away from her last name to follow you on your adventure. And you better man up and, and take care of her. Because if you don't, she cannot live with you. And I'm not talking about buying her a Mercedes and having a fur coat. I'm talking about you being man enough to work hard enough, regardless of what it is, that you provide for her physical needs and the physical needs of those babies you bring into the world. And her number five need is family commitment. She's got to believe that you'll choose her and those children over everything and everybody else. Now, you take those two lists and you pick a random number, one out of five, and you pull one off. And when you pull one off, you get catastrophic system failure. Because you take one away and one will collapse here, and when one collapses here, one collapses here, and it just falls straight apart. Meeting each other's needs is the key to keeping your marriage successful. Meeting each other's needs is the only way to secure that she doesn't look for somebody to meet these needs and he doesn't look for somebody to meet these needs. And if you will meet each other's needs mutually, this is not where you go home and say, you heard what that little preacher said, you've got to do this for me. No, 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 no. This is you go home and say, this is what he said I have to do for her. It's not a thing you use as a weapon to wield against each other. It's an owner's manual that says, if you want your wife functioning well, this is what you have to do to take care of her. And if you want your husband functioning well, these are the things you have to do to take care of him. Now, there's some exceptions to the rules, and these are some, some generalities. But in general, if it's anything less than moderate 
to a mild marital problem, understanding those five things on each end will solve anything that comes through my office door. Now, if it goes beyond that, I use the work of John Gottman. They've rung a bell. I don't know if that's a five-minute warning or, hey, Lonnie, you're done. So let's pray, and I'm done. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship and study with these people. Father, thank you for the friends I have in this room and for the friends I'll make today. Father, bless us as we think about not our needs, but the needs of our spouses. Help us to understand them and treat them with the honor and respect that we would like to be treated with ourselves. Father, you put us first in taking care of us. Help us to put each other first in taking care of our spouses and our families. Bless us the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.